The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is our seventh class, our last class in this course on cultivating wholesome relationships and learning what the Buddha had to teach about being in relationship with the present moment, with this life, this body and mind, and with everybody else, all the creatures on this planet, the friends, partners, the difficult people, everybody in word relationship with. In the last couple weeks, but especially last week, I talked about the experience of intimacy with another human being, with a group, And tonight, especially looking at what gets in the way. So if we value those moments when the heart is simple and open and fresh, and we learn to value the creativity and the skillfulness that comes out of those moments, well, to whatever degree we really value that social competency, that wisdom and compassion and, you know, saintly activities that we see in others and see in ourselves in moments when the mind, when the heart's really beautiful, balanced, open, then naturally we'll be interested in what gets in the way. And then instead of hating what gets in the way, (laughs) doesn't work more of the same, finding a way to be in relationship with that. And that's just so important because, you know, given that we're conditioned the way that we're conditioned, it's like in a way for our social being, as social beings conditioned in this way through evolution to be part of a group, that relatedness is such a primary food for the heart, to belong, to feel like we're in relationship. And so any kind of not belonging, any kind of rejection, then is in a sense the most primary threat. And just think about how many rejections we've experienced, even within our own mind and heart, and then in so many of our relationships where we felt you know, pushed away, rejected, betrayed, dropped. And then these wounds, the pain of that not belonging. And then, of course, whenever that first painful moment of betrayal, of rejection, right, then a narrative, a quiet, secretive narrative often begins you know, whatever it is, not being good enough, not being deserving of love, not being deserving of safety, then that voice, that narrative, it starts to build some momentum. And in a way, we can, um, in, you know, in different convoluted ways, we start to look for ways of not belonging, look for ways of being rejected, look for ways of mistrusting, relating, relating even to our own body, 
relating to the moment, relating to each other. We want to, in a way, give up on a project that we can't give up on, this project of relating. So I think the, you know, it just makes so much sense that um, we bring a tender-heartedness to this whole um, topic of looking at our social conditioning. I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine a more more of a setup than what we have as human beings conditioned to need to belong, to need to be in relationship. And then so many forces, like even the force of sexuality that's deeply conditioned in and related to our social conditioning and all the conditioning around power and all of our cultural and genetic conditioning around difference, difference in terms of sex and gender and difference in terms of um, how we look, body shape, color of skin, class, all these cultural attributes, right? And uh, difference in terms of age. So we have all this sort of, these factors, and then all that woundedness from relationships where we felt hurt, and then the narrative that builds up around all that pain, and then that's a living thing that's always affecting our heart and mind and all of our other moments, future moments of relating. That narrative of not being good enough or being better than or whatever the narrative narrative might be. So in this interdependent dance of all these forces that are alive in us, alive culturally, alive in others, and then, right, then we're sort of here on this planet needing to get along. And then we get a world like we have. Somebody sent in an email um, and just talking about uh, a mix of abuse and cultural norms and just this convoluted situation we're all in. And they write, in my hurt over this, it caused my mind's habit to become ever aversive toward myself and others and grasping toward what I felt I, uh, what I felt I could fix. It has affected my love relationships and intimacy in every relationship. And I think the first step is that tenderizing, like what a setup it is to have a heart, to have the conditioning that we have. And then just to have a lot of, um, you know, out of that tenderness comes a lot of patience with our own difficulties in relationships and all the difficulty we see around us, like people having a hard time with us or people having a hard time with each other or people acting out in all the ways they're acting out. I mean, it's it isn't that hard for us when we're observing somebody like a politician or a, somebody at work or you know somebody in our family who we might classify as 
somebody who's out of balance or somebody who's destructive or somebody, you know, causing a lot of harm. It doesn't, when we're safe enough that we can bring a fresh and open, tender-hearted view, we, in a way, the wisdom sees roots, not, not necessarily directly, but intuits the roots of those behaviors, those patterns we're seeing in others. And we can do the same for ourselves. When we see ourselves being less than skillful, doing the same thing, getting the same result, you know, these patterns that tend to repeat themselves, then that's wisdom's job. Compassion and wisdom's job is to understand, oh, I get it. This is nature. When all of this is in motion, then this is how I'm going to show up. I'm going to be defensive in this way. I'm going to be deflecting in this way. I'm going to, you know, be deluded in this way. I'm going to act out with anger in this way. I'm going to try to manipulate the person in this way. Or we see that in another person. Oh, of course. We still need to kind of navigate that social space and take care of ourselves or take care of our responsibilities in that social space. But it doesn't mean, like, we'll get better at that knowing that all this behavior, all these patterns, all the skill we see and all the destructive patterns we see, they all have long, deep roots. Nothing is, it's never as simple as that person's bad or that person's great, you know, so skillful. Oh, that person's a saint. What we should see when we see somebody manifesting saintly, beautiful, you know, social um, expressions, you know, like being really generous or really kind or really skillful in some way, we shouldn't see a person who we immediately define as good, oh, that's a good person. We should see this like the trail of causes and conditions that leads up to this person in this moment with this circumstance acting skillfully in this way. So we're seeing it, training the mind, the heart to see it as a natural process. How their skillfulness, their saintliness it really couldn't be other than the way it is right now, given that that um, trail of causes and conditions that has led to this moment, what I call that person. And the same thing with someone who's, you know, really tormenting us or being really unskillful or acting out in some uh, unskillful way. Instead of like, oh, that's a bad person, I mean, yeah, it's fine to kind of, in, you know, use that language, but we don't want to get confused by that language. We want to train the mind to see the trail, using, using our imagination, our intuition, and understand that there are innumerable causes and conditions <clears throat> when combined with this particular setup, this, these circumstances that are here that this person's negative or unwholesome behavior can't be other than the way it is. And it isn't, as language goes, we say, yeah, that person is acting out, they're unskillful, we need to do something. But the deeper spiritual understanding is, of 
course it's this way. Of course. I still want to do whatever I can do to keep people from being harmed. But I'm not confused. I'm not confused in the sense of somehow imagining there's a bad person there. There's, there's a force, a natural force, manifesting in ways that maybe is harmful and needs to be stopped. But it isn't a person in the sense of this entity that's evil. It's just this flow of causes and conditions appropriately acting out what's been set in motion. And it's not about letting anybody off the hook, but it is about, you know, um, changing how we understand, you know, retribution or punishment. Because there isn't a somebody to punish. There's only a natural movement to sort of uh, change the trajectory toward a more wholesome unfolding. So it's always about like there are forces in motion, things in motion. We call them human life. We call them me and you. There are these things in motion. And there's a deepening wisdom and awareness and love that is able that stability of wisdom, love, awareness to see that the, these things in motion we call you and me. And then the natural and compassionate uh, participation in all that is in motion is to somehow shape that motion in directions that are beautiful, in healing and liberating for everybody. Why not? There's, there's something uh, like that activity of contributing and showing up and participating in that way is is both, it both illuminates what we need to see, that rubbing and scrubbing, and it just feels good to be participating with that motivation. How to use this engagement for so that this activity that I call me can keep moving or continue to move or the movement could be con corrected to move in a beautiful, wholesome, more free direction. And how could the taking care of myself in that way also contribute to everybody else's natural unfolding, moving in more wholesome directions instead of more toxic directions? It's still nature, whether somebody's life is unfolding in a really toxic and destructive direction or whether somebody's life is unfolding in a really beautiful direction. Both are completely and only nature, a natural unfolding. But with wisdom and awareness, we have this reflective capacity to see how things are unfolding and see other possibilities. And that's just a beautiful way to show up in the world. It's what in later Buddhist traditions, you know, the reason they made such a strong emphasis on this bodhisattva aspiration to live practice for the benefit of all beings, it wasn't meant to be a chore. It's meant to, it's, it's just an articulation of what freedom looks like. It is that altruistic motivation. That's what freedom looks like. But it isn't a personal burden to live for the benefit of others or to 
aspire to be a helpful human being. It's really a privilege. It's what's left when that stability of wisdom, love, awareness, that that um, stable presence that isn't confused by these things we call people and other creatures and their activity, where we're not sort of assuming there's there's an entity there that if the activity is beautiful, then that entity is beautiful. If the activity is bad, then there's somebody bad in there. No, but we just see it as nature. In the same way, you know, we've learned to some degree at least to see that in terms of weather. I mean, a terrible storm could be blowing in, but we'd, we'd sort of respect it as a kind of beauty, even though it might be very destructive or a drought or too much rain. We don't personalize it, even though it can be very destructive or very beautiful, you know? And so the same thing with human lives. So that in terms of our relationships, then the question is, how does that change how we're in relationship with others? That perception, cultivating that perception So part of what we need to do, you know, to cultivate that perception, first and foremost, we have to have a more honest relationship about just the convoluted, entangled, wounded, distorting um, internal forces that make up what we call ourselves. And I mentioned them briefly in the beginning, like that... I have a lot of conditioning around sexuality. You know, each of us in our unique ways, by culture, by genetics, right, we show up as a sexual being. Even now in my 60s, it's still showing up, right? And then we have that same complex, convoluted conditioning around power, around so many of these important conditioning factors in our lives. And uh, we might initially think that I'm going to, you know, get it organized and get on top of it. And then, you know, I'll be able to be a skillful human being. But the, you know, the thing that, that stands out more than almost anything is that there's never going to be any stability in relationship. Like, my conditioning is so complex. There's really no way for me to ever get to the bottom and like really see and know it all, let alone all the other people I'm relating to. So there's always going to be a wild quality in the dynamic of interacting with others. And that uh, that's good in a way because then we, we, will, we will move from some attempt to get on top and control our personalities and control our relationships, and we'll rely eventually, we'll realize the only refuge is wisdom. And that's what I was talking about these last few minutes, this wisdom of, okay, so I can't manage and control the stance completely. Now, we can do it to some degree, right? 
So we're not giving up on the project of like cultivating a wholesome personality and teasing out habits that aren't helpful. We're just not imagining we're going to ever get to the end of that. And we're, as we do that work, it sort of buys time to do this more subtle work, which is to realize that the personality is essentially nature, like everything else. And nature is this interdependent dance of so many different forces, and no one can ever get on top of it. There isn't, you know, it's sort of like a weird thing. It would be like some aspect of the weather thinking it's going to get on top of the weather. Whatever that selfing might be, that sense of me who wants to get in control of my personality or get in control of my relationship with my partner or get in control of my relationships at Common Ground or whatever, it's just imagining that that's somehow apart from this interdependent natural dance. So wisdom is letting go for enough time, enough space, of that attempt to get better to control and just more in that space of openness and letting the relationship, the relating, the personality, letting it move, letting it express itself and learning to see it, understand it, not in terms of self-view, but in terms of what's actually coming and going in our experience. These different forces perfectly expressing, like even if we have convoluted wounding, as many of us do, some of course much more than others from the past, abuse or whatever kinds of difficulties we've experienced in life that have shaped how the heart, mind, body is conditioned. Right? So, what, even though that, that conditioned, those, the, the heart has been conditioned, still we can observe how natural and in a sense beautiful its response to the moment is. How like nature knows, just like water knows how to flow down the side of a mountain, this personality, these tendencies, they know how to show up in the moment. So, Mark, as a personality, in relationship with other personalities, I don't have to try to show up as nature. <laughs> it's always going to be nature. So, it's, so that observation, the nice thing about it, it already has the flavor of liberation. Because I don't need to do anything. I don't need to be a different human being. I don't have to be better, or quieter, or more equanimous, or have more love. I just need to relate to it as nature. And then all those beautiful qualities that we think we should be start showing up when, instead of trying to be a saint, trying to be saintly, I'm just willing to let nature be nature. Because that's already love. It's already patience and understanding and acceptance and forgiveness. They're all going to start maturing just in this.
in the same way when I'm bringing that attitude to another. Like when we start to see another human being as the activity of nature, it's in no way dismissing them. In a way it's seeing, there. you know, we sometimes talk about it, not so much in Buddhism, but I, I think there's some value in, you know, because I think it can be such a healing thing to see something beautiful, to have that capacity to see something beautiful in another person, as opposed to, you know, that critical eye that's always noticing what's off and how they could be doing their life better and being a better version of themselves and, and judging them in that way. But this seeing something beautiful in another person, of course, it's not meant to be delusional, like where we're seeing something that that person can never be. So what do we mean when we see something beautiful, something good in another human being? What does that actually mean? Like, what is our experience of that when we see uh, and we're inspired and by that beauty and that goodness? Right? And so I think that's a, a good reflection, you know, as we end our course to really practice and in a way take responsibility of how we're seeing, how we're imagining other people. Not to presume that the conditioned way of seeing somebody is the only way. It may be the initial way because that's the habit of the mind. But that's okay, we can know well, that's the habit of the mind to immediately pigeonhole that person in this way or defend myself because I'm imagining they're this way, so I'm going to be this way. But we see that, we see each of the responses, right? Until the mind is more in this stable, kind, clear place. And then we might notice something really beautiful. And one of the telltale signs is the goodness that we sense in the moment, in the interaction, in the being in relationship in the moment. It isn't personal, but it's real and it's trustworthy. And it changes how we understand that person. It really helps us be okay with everything that's needs kind of a response because they're acting out and we're responsible to give them some feedback, let's say. Or I need to take care of myself and give them, you know, I have to leave this situation because I don't trust that person. But it doesn't have to get in the way of us sensing that they're good or that they're part of what is already whole and complete even as I have to take care of my particular social responsibility in this particular social situation where power is involved and sexuality is involved and gender is involved and all of our biases around difference are involved. All of this conditioning is at play and there's an understanding there's a heart connection. There's a, there's a peace and a love even while we act out, 
take care of our social activities with people, with other creatures. So for the small groups tonight, I thought what might be useful, I, I have three topics here that I'll just kind of go through, and you might just think uh, in a moment, uh, Gabe will put up the link for the Zoom groups. Now remember, these Zoom groups are optional, and if you're going to opt out, you might just find a Dharma friend or a good friend later, a couple days from now when you're on the phone, and you might uh, just kind of dig into one of these three reflections. And so one one thing I think is really good for us to talk about is moments of intimacy. And intimacy with or without grasping. So like when we feel there is a moment with a group, with another person, being alone, but it feels like there's some real intimacy in that moment, then to be curious about in any way was the mind grasping. Was there an expectation or an agenda? And sometimes, you know, what's interesting in those moments where it feels quite alive with intimacy and there's a real sense of freedom because of that, is then to get curious about how the mind might overlay some meaning on that experience. Then that begins to you know, oppress the mind in some way. Another topic I thought you could bring up, folks could bring up in the small groups, is just um, any learning around the activity of reconciliation. So conflict is pretty common in our lives, and, you know, being in relationship, disagreements often can be quite painful, even years and even decades later. So, what, like when we think about moments, and this is again something you might share in the small group, when you think about times when there has been some reconciliation, some disentangling, what understandings, what was in that dynamic of reconciliation and healing that you feel you feel supported the putting down of the resentment or the deepening of the forgiveness and the supporting the healing. What are the supporting causes for reconciliation? And then the last topic that you might bring up in your small groups is, uh, I think I mentioned this teacher that had the short little pithy phrase, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. So just thinking about relationships in your life, where there has been sometimes a pretty powerful, fearless movement into conversation, into dialogue, a commitment to be in relationship with another person. And then to just reflect like, oh, that commitment, being in relationship, being in dialogue with this person, showing up in the ways that I showed up, really led to the, this kind of transformation in my life. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.